the Tom Flowers Cricket Coaching Podcast, brought to you by Bespoke Cricket, Rutland's premium cricket brand. For the best bats, pads and gloves, check out bespoke-cricket.co.uk. I was getting the ball to swing. Um, we got into the morning of the game, the first, first day of the game, um, and Darren Goff uh, and I think Andy Caddick would have been the bowlers, um, were both swinging it a little bit. And then the other two guys after that weren't really regarded as swing bowlers. So they wanted to try somebody else to try and swing it. And I chucked down a few filthy sort of seamers. Um, I had uh, Imran Nazir dropped at third man initially um, and then caught extra cover by Ashley Giles. So um, delighted with my one wicket, shall we say. Port Giles, bold Triscothic. There's a, there's yeah. a nice ring to that, isn't there? Yeah. Thanks, Marcus. That's great. So... Um, on to the <laughs> on to the main part of the questions. Thanks for your patience with that one. First one I had in was um, now some of these will be quick fire, some of them will be more detailed. So feel free to go into as much or as little detail as, as you wish. But did you always want to be a professional cricketer? Yeah, I think I was sort of toying from a junior level, really, of sort of playing cricket or playing football. Um, I was always better at cricket um, and wanted to, you know, I made that sort of choice around around sort of 14, probably more than anything else, that um, cricket was where I was going to go. I remember speaking with mum about, you know, a little bit just after that, about, okay, look, if you're going to be serious about cricket, then you've got to be serious. You've got to think about training. You've got to think about changing the way that you, you eat, your diet and things. Um, and you've got to give this a shot so that, you know, you, the, the exam stuff at that time really didn't um, have too much of an impact. So I sort of put them uh, on the back burner and just left them alone. Didn't really focus on them too much when the GCSEs came around. Um, and I was lucky enough then to join Somerset that literally the day after my last GCSE exam and started playing for them for the end of that season and then signed professional when I was sort of 17 in that winter um, to start my career then. Well, and um, obviously now, just on the education front, just we've got a few younger guys that have tuned in today. I mean, mm. do you think it's easier now, would you say, for or there's more support there for the guys that are doing their education whilst trying to be professional cricketers? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think it's um, it's completely changed in in the in the recent times that I was playing. Um, that you you now expected to, um, you know, for a start you have to go through A levels, so you have or uh, an apprenticeship, don't you? So you you can't get out until you're 18 at least. Um, but then you're encouraged very much so, especially by the Professional Cricketers Association, the union that looks after all professional sportsmen, professional cricketers, um, to continue your personal development to try and educate yourself because you never know when a cricket career or a sport career may finish. It may happen overnight and you might not be prepared for it. Um, even now, you know, I've, I've played for 27 years and uh, I've moved into my next career of coaching. Um, I'm still looking at active ways that I can improve um, more courses, more uh, qualifications to sort of build up my CV to, to help me um, become a better person to be able to coach better more than anything um, and you've got to be prepared to put those hours in just to make sure that you've got things ticked off behind the scenes because it will help you when you're playing cricket there's no doubt about it and I think that's that's crucial Marks. and I think just to set the scene for some of the guys um, I think we first came across each other probably about eight years ago nine years ago at Taunton School and at the time um, as a younger coach um, I was sort of out really that you know Marcus Jusufik's coaching and school time here but like you say there is is it part of that about gaining experience and and just boosting that CV would you say 
Yeah, I, well, I, I knew that that's coaching was where it's going to sort of gradually move into, com- combining that with a bit of punditry with on TV. Um, but, but coaching was the, um, you know, kept me involved with the game and keeps you on the front line doing the work um, that you love doing. Um, and I, you know, they gave me an opportunity. School, you know, Taunton School gave me a massive opportunity to come in and do some coaching. It started off as a prep. They were going to India, I think, to do some, to do a tour. So they brought me in to do a bit of coaching to try and help them think about that. And it gradually progressed. My kids went there and obviously, which really helps um, also doing it that way. Um, but now I work there. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't tell you how many hours I work there at the moment, but um, you know, quite often, just uh, in the winters, I, I'll be up there in between either playing when I was playing or coaching. Now I pop in and out um, and do the the hours of coaching there also. So I'm quite lucky that I'm getting a massive range of um, of coaching hours from uh, year sixes, year sevens, all the way to the test guys um, right at the top that uh, you know that the spectrum of players that I'm working with is, is such a helpful thing but um, coaching the youngsters is by far the hardest compared to coaching with the professionals there's no doubt about that in my mind <laughs> no, that's interesting thanks for that Marcus so um, next question we had in was did you feel that there's anything that set you apart from other cricketers as a youngster in your early days at Somerset? and I guess this requires probably not to not be quite as modest, but is there anything where you thought, yeah, you know, this sets me apart, um, and I'm 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 ahead of these guys? Well, I I don't think you realise it at the time. Uh, a couple of things where I would say, look, one was I I hit the ball quite hard. I was quite a big lad anyway, sort of growing up, uh, and I could hit the ball harder than, than most people. Time it well. Um, I scored big scores, uh, even from a younger age. You know, sort of nine ten, I was scoring hundreds. Um, in levels a year above where I should have been playing. Um, and I could play probably quick bowling also. You know, when you, you know you get those guys that you see around him, there's one tall lad in the team and I bet he bowls fast. Um, or they have that quick bowler that everyone talks about the whole county. Whenever we faced, seemed to face those quick bowlers, I seemed to really sort of sharpen up and be even better than I normally was. Um, and that, that sort of stayed with me for a long period of time through my junior cricket remember playing a club game with uh, when dad was, I bet it came to a cricket club. Uh, dad was captain that day and I was only 14, I think. And uh, they had a fast guy from uh, South Africa. Uh, everyone was talking about it before the start of the game. Um, and they said, right, you're going to have to bat seven today because obviously they've got this guy. And, and everyone else got out. I was the only one who could face him and get any runs against him. So um, it seemed to really help my game when somebody bowled quick. That's... Um... That's an interesting point, and I think maybe slightly off topic, but I'd like to sort of ask you a question. I know a lot of the guys would be interested here. What's your take on um, youngsters playing senior cricket then from an early age? Because that's quite a quite an interesting topic that often comes up, and in every club you're in, this debate rumbles on. What's your take on that? I think the sooner they can get into the the adult environment where they're facing, um, you know, a tougher component uh, opposition. Um, I think that's got to be beneficial. Um, club cricket is it is what it is, and it's obviously a good learning ground. Schools cricket is it's a tough one, isn't it? Because that's where the it's where it's most contentious. If they're playing um, good other schools, um, I think there's also room for them to be in that environment to show that they can dominate and be better than everyone else. But there's got to be a cross pressure um, to understand that they have to grow their game. 
um, and be dominated by a first team uh, Western League side or wherever it would be, um, whatever these, these leagues are nowadays. Um, you have to you have to be exposed to it at some point. There's no doubt about it. Um, mm. But it's got to be you know I know I, I appreciate schools cricket is is very important to the school, um, but there's got to be a balance. I think that helps everybody. Really um, great. Tom. Sorry, Tom uh, Andrew Jones. Can I ask a quick question on the back of um, on the back of uh, on the back of that? Yeah, of course you can, Andrew. Good to good to see you, chap. Good. Um, hello, Marcus. Andrew Andrew Jones here from down Cornwall, down Cornwall Cricket. Just on the back of what you said, you described briefly how easy you found it at that age coming in. Age-old question then, born or made, was the skills that you found yourself with then that you, can you describe exactly how you came about them or did you, did, was it just something you were naturally, you seemed to be naturally gifted with? That's really tricky to answer, isn't it, Jonesy? Um, <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not, I've not worked that out yet myself. Um, it, have you identified a coach or anyone who worked with you then? Have you identified anybody or, or the messages that you, we're all involved in coaching now, what messages, you're looking, for, you're looking to try and find youngsters that have got the time that you're talking about. You obviously had time to play this and we're yeah. desperately trying to find those kind of the messages to, to get to those youngsters. Anybody, anybody that you can think of as you were coming up through anything, any drill or anything that was done or anything at any particular time seemed to just click or not? <sighs> I don't think there is any one thing or, you know, or a combination of things. I was lucky I got to work with some um, good coaches, as you do. I, Dad and the, the, the parents at the cricket club where I was initially were uh, very instrumental to, to what went on. And then you go through into your age group coaches. Everyone has their own little way. You know, I wouldn't say, you know, looking at that question there, the influential coaches, the influential coaches really came to me when I was older, when I was more playing county cricket Somerset um, or international cricket uh, with England that's when I noticed maybe because I was a bit more aware about what sort of coaching I was getting but you know for me growing up I was very um, I had a massive love of what I was doing playing cricket and if I wasn't playing with my mates or if I wasn't playing a game um, I dad would be out in the middle and I know there's millions of times I'd just be in the net on my own just throwing the ball up and whacking it into the in, into the net um, and, and now, when, now I'm doing my own learning about coaching and trying to understand what juniors do and what makes them right. And they talk about these 10,000 hours or the period of time before you're a certain age, before you're doing all this coaching. Maybe I was, maybe it was I was coaching myself and, and was learning the game um, from a very, very young age. And I just didn't realize what I was doing. And all the attributes were coming, were growing and building um, without me even knowing that it was happening. So uh, I guess I was putting in the time uh, and getting ahead of the game from a younger age. Maybe you didn't have the the distractions that maybe some of the kids seem to have today. It seems to be one of the hardest things is the distractions, the options they have to do other things, getting them to just, you, you're describing what we all did, go up and up the field. But no, pretty brilliant. Thanks for that. Thanks. Okay. That's great. No, great question. Thanks for that. And guys, like I said, do, do chip in and, and that's a really good question. So if you think there's you know, something to add or ask, please do. Um, We've sort of covered the next one, haven't we, really, Marcus, I guess. So, um, having, uh, after having a successful playing career at Somerset, uh, what has changed about the professional game, do you think, specifically in the county championship? Now, I presume that means over the years you played as opposed to since you finished. But um, in your opinion, is there one or two things that have changed significantly? Yeah. Well, the, the game has <laughs> dramatically 
um, improved. You know, the athleticism in the game, the professionalism in the game, um, the approach to the game from a younger age um, is far greater now. You know, the guys are going through the pathway from the age of 10, 11, 12, 14, up to academy and beyond. You know, that, that's the, the journey of what they had. Um, the professional side, um, I remember when I was sort of starting back when I was sort of 17, 18, you would be sent home or you'd go home in the winter. And I used to live in Bristol. And then obviously during the summer, I'd come down and live in Taunton. Um, but you would practice after Christmas, maybe once, twice a week, um, come down for nets with the rest of the players. Uh, there wouldn't be particularly much fitness or anything involved. And then you'd be expected to return on the 1st of April um, for about a three and a half week pre-season leading into the start of the summer, um, where it was a, a case of if you got outdoors, sometimes you'd get outdoors on the 1st of April and everyone would be running around, batting, bowling. Um, and without a doubt, people would be injured by the end of the week because they've just not done enough loading or got their bodies prepared. Um, but, you know, it's so, it's so detailed now. You, you see some of the academy programs and some of the, um, the player pathway programs now, which are the training, the fitness, the, the diets, the, the psychology, everything that goes with it. So they're being prepared uh, and prepped for becoming a professional sportsman, a professional cricketer from a very young age. So it's ingrained once they're getting there. You know, we're lucky, I think, with our academy with Somerset is that we're producing and it's continuing to uh, get players through um, at a good age and ready to sort of join the staff um, because it's just so professional from seven or eight years younger compared to when I sort of started. So, um, you know, it's, it's never been a better time almost to be a professional cricketer, to join through now and get through the system uh, and be what you can become because it's, uh, it's an epic place to be. Thanks for that, Mark. That's great insight. And I know there's a couple of some, uh, um, supporters that have actually signed up for today, so they'll appreciate that. Um, if they want to probably find out more specifically your views on the county championship, can we ask that one at the end, guys, because that could open up a can of worms that take us off a, off on a tangent here. So if you if that's okay for the guys, yeah, sure. yeah. ask that. Um, that would be perfect. So a bit now batting against fast bowling. Um I'm not sure who was bowling there, if you can remember on that picture, but... Um, uh, it's an England game. Yeah. Um, by the look of it. Yeah. Um, what's the, what do you think the most important factor is, you know, when facing fast bowling? It's a question, I think, that often flies around the coaching scene, isn't it? You know, what, yeah. what is the most important thing? Um, I think you, it all depends on what type of player you are. I think it's really important that you've got your method... Um, I, I like trigger movements. I, I think they work really well for batters um, and get them get the batters into in good position. Um, although I have seen, you know, some of the better players of, of quicker bowling, like Nick Compton. I played with Nick Compton for quite a period of time, uh, and he was really good against the quicker bowlers because he could just ride the bounce of the ball and good at pulling. And he he never had a trigger movement at all. Um, didn't move his bat. Just stood dead still, waiting for the ball to come down. Um, but I think if you have that balanced position and you're getting into a base pretty quickly, get your triggers and get all your movements out of the way, that, that stands you in a decent position um, and good stead to be able to play quicker bowlers. Um, I think you've got to have a certain amount of ticker. You've got to be ready to be able to get in the fight, be prepared to be hit. Um, think about you know the scoring areas of where you're going to be. Um, I think when I was playing with England, my style of play and my technique was more suited to playing the ball that would be bouncing sort of knee high and above. Um, on good pitches so I could sort of sit back and not really move into it that much 
Um, if, I, if I'm coaching the better players nowadays, or so let's say someone like a Tom Banton um, and Tom Abel, maybe from, from Somerset also, you know, I think we work very hard on the short ball. Um, I know Graham Thorpe and uh, Mark Rampakash have pushed players from a long period of time now to get very good at playing quick bowling because it's so important. Um, I, I went into the, the Ashes stuff this last summer um, and you'd seen Rory Burns. Rory Burns has a, has a brilliant career and scored mountains of runs in county cricket. But suddenly they bowled very short at him and, and they were all testing him on the short ball. And it wasn't easy for him. So he was in the middle of his first series against Australia going into the nets with Graham Thorpe and having lots of short ball practice. So that, if we could escalate that and bring that forward, um, you've got to get used to it at a quicker age um, because you, it's one of the first places you'll get highlighted against a quick bowling attack is they'll bowl short at you. Thanks, Marcus. What age, I mean, the big guys in here thinking, well, guys of that sort of age and, and girls, but also coaches, what sort of age do you think we should start exposing ourselves as players, and ourselves as coaches, you know, these guys to, to the short ball? I, I don't think there's necessarily an age to it. I think it's yeah. more of an ability level. Yeah. When, when you think potentially, okay, this lad's ready to sort of step up. Um, he, might be, he might be 13 and you'll be going, he, he can cope with bowlers three, three years older than what he can do. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be testing it. I, I've seen kids at our school, at Taunton School, um, and there's one or two, there's two of them, who I would say are sort of year eight students. Um, so what are they, 10, going into senior, senior school? No, there'll be more than that, 12. Um, are ready to sort of kick on and say, right, let's start taking on some bump practice and, and some unique style of playing against quicker bowlers because, you know, they could, they could easily play in under 15 games and succeed. So um, it's more of an age level for me. Perfect. Sorry, is. more of an ability level. Sorry, not an age level. No, thank you. That's great. Um, what a technical question, I guess. We've got um, a, a varied uh, you know, um, amount of different types of people on here. Um, can you simplify that as, as best you can as an opening battle? What were your plans to combat swing bowling? Um, uh, yeah, I think more than anything else, I think you've got to wait for the ball. You know, you're trying to play it as late as possible. Um, give the ball time to let it swing was my sort of theory um, I wouldn't want to get at the ball too much I was trying to let it come as, as much as possible try and hit it right under my nose as, as you know as late as possible as I could uh, that was the the real key bit um, and also not trying to predict where it was going to be so quite often you you know it's going to be off stump and just outside uh, and you can get a little bit anxious to get at the ball especially early season on pitches that are going to nibble around a little bit so you get a little bit um, premeditating, knowing where the ball is, so it's the worst thing you can do. You've got to really sit back, and and for me to let it swing, let it happen, and hit the ball late. On on the back of that, I've just got myself thinking here. Do you think the leave that you sort of adopted in your career benefited your ability to play that swing ball? I think it helped. Yeah, I do think it helped. It helped in a method of playing on pitches that would nibble around because I would just play the line of what I thought the ball was, um, almost protecting my stumps and my pads. And then let the ball swing away or let the ball swing in to hit the bat and, and sort of play it in that fashion. Um, <laughs> so it did, it did help because you could sort of line it up um, and, and sort of give yourself that opportunity. But that really changed my game, you know, finding that method of, of doing it because um, it, it enabled me to bat for longer periods of time. I could still hit the ball and I could still score runs. 
but now I was being a lot more selective about what I was trying to do and leaving so many more balls. But it came about by pure accident how I found it. Um, whilst being in Australia one winter uh, playing club cricket, I was working with a guy called Peter Carlstein at the, at the WACA in WA in Perth. Um, and we'd gone into sessions and I was expecting some good practice and you know, looking forward to my hour hit and the time that had been allotted. And I got there and there was like three or four people who was else in the net, you know, joining also. Um, so basically when you're out, you're out and someone else had their opportunity. And I was getting really annoyed at this because it was like, this isn't, I want more time. I want more practice. I want to be working with you and, and learning. So I sort of went into this practice. We used to use a, a half bat, which was like eight centimeters wide. And he'd have tennis balls out of the bowling machine in that he could spin them to make them swing and do different things. Um, so I then just worked out and said, right, I'm going to play for my stumps. And that's all I did is went like that. And I worked out and I thought, do you know what? That might work out in a game. And there you go. The rest is history. That's fantastic insight. Thanks for that, Mark. Well, can, I, can I have a go in there? Of course. Um, it's, it's Steve, um, Tom's younger brother, Marcus, sorry. Slightly better Hello, looking. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to pick up on what you're talking about, about fast bowl and trying to piece it all together. Obviously, um, I would suggest that from what I've seen in the, over the years is very much you rely, like you say, on your hands and hand-eye co co coordination and bits like that and not much footwork. I mean, and is, does that come from the idea of, you know, when you, when you say that as a young age from a um, fantastic against fast bowling and things like that, that's where you really exerted it. Would, it. would it come through you just trusting your eye with that in particular? It's interesting. You know, I've been watching the TV today. So the, the Edge Baston test is on, uh, on Sky today. And, um, um, it made me realise, actually, you know what? I didn't hardly move my feet, did I? It was like there was really not much movement at all because you you, you sort of evolve and change. And I, my style for playing county cricket at the back end of my career was a lot different. And I moved my feet deliberately a lot more because I had to get closer to the ball. But um, the, key, the key bit to it, watching back and thinking about how it was, was the contact point of the ball. Because you, you couldn't stand dead still and not move at all. Um, and you hit the ball under your eyes. It's irrelevant what your feet do, in my, in, my, in my belief, I don't think. You know, we see Steve Smith. We see Kane Williamson. They, they, they don't move a massive amount of foot movement. They move quite a lot of body and their hips and their, their, their weight is moving into the ball. But they hit the ball so late, which is absolutely crucial. If, if they, for one minute they get out in front of their, their front foot or their front of their knee, Everyone is the same. Everyone's in danger at that point because you're hitting the ball at totally the wrong time and you're out of control. So if the ball's swinging, that's when you get into trouble. So, you know, I, again, watching the TV, I was amazed at how well, how late I hit the ball for not hardly moving my feet. Brilliant. Thank you. I'll have to ask that participant to mute his microphone now after uh, critiquing uh, your footwork, Marcus. So, um, <laughs> thanks very much. Um, okay, so next question. Uh, <coughs> Yeah, a common question I'm guessing that you get a lot of really as a connected to national would be who are the best fast bowlers you've faced? Um, I'd say bet, maybe could you name could you name your most skillful and then maybe the fastest? Yeah, I, I thought the best uh, the best quick bowler or fast bowler, opening bowler, whatever you want to be, would have been Glenn McGrath. Um, his accuracy, um, his ability to make the ball seem on pretty much any pitch that you played. Um, the bounce that he got, he was quicker than you expected as well. He used to hit the bat a lot harder um, than you, you, you sort of saw the ball through the air almost. Um, so he just surprised you that little bit. Um, and he was just always at you. Uh, I found him very tricky on any situation, any given day, that he was always quite, quite challenging. 
it was only really in 2005 when we, we started to be a bit more aggressive. Um, and obviously he had a sore ankle at that time that we could sort of start dominating and get on top of him a little bit. But he was the best quick bowler. The quickest I faced, uh, two, Brett Lee or Shoaib Akhtar. Both were at times up to sort of 94, 95 miles an hour. Um, and you had to be on your game. There were certain times when I faced them which I felt really confident. Uh, I was playing the ball well and I was felt in good nick that I could be aggressive against them. Um, there was other times when I felt out of form um, and they felt too quick, you know, and you, you really struggled to get used to the pace of what they were trying to do. So, you know, it's, given, it's good days and bad days as you would face any type of bowler. Um, Wazi Makram was another one. He's the best left arm seamer I faced, especially when the ball reversed. Um, he was a superb bowler. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, I faced Walsh, Ambrose, Wackar, uh, Wazim, um, many other good bowlers out there. So it's like, you know, you, you get, you have good days up against them and, uh, you know, you really respect what they do. That's great. Thanks for that, Marcus. Hopefully that covers that one. So it leads us nicely on to um, batting against spin, really. Um, again, a combination of questions we've, we've got for you that have come in, but also that we've sort of put together here. Um, what the, what the key points you'd say against scoring against good spin bowling? What would you say um, the key points are for that? Um, the method for me is absolutely crucial. Right? So I, I worked out a bit of a technique in terms of while working with Duncan Fletcher about the forward press or the forward movement, whatever it need, needs to be. And that's really sort of getting you in a position to be able to then pick the length of the ball and then make a late decision to where you're going to play it. Um, but I think it's really important you get a method. If you're, if you're too tall um, or if you only play in one style away, then you, you know, you, you'll get found out pretty quickly. Um, so understand how you're going to do this. You know, work out, have a good defence, um, be able to sweep if you can and be able to use your feet would be the three main important parts of it. Um, combining that with a, you know, with a certain style of play uh, and technique about what you're trying to learn. Um, you're really best to try and if you can watch as much of the Asians batting against spin, you'll see them have this forward movement or the forward press trying to get into the ball to try and get their movement out of the way. Um, Duncan Fletcher's principle or theory was that you had to have less movements going on against spin bowlers to be able to pick the ball when you're facing Murilithran or Warren so that, so that when you made the decision what you're going to hit, you had little movement to get to the ball to make that choice and make it happen. Great stuff. That's fantastic insight. That um, I guess you've already answered this, really. But do you think it's? I think it comes on the back of obviously one of your trademark shots being the sweep, the slog sweep, um, and one of the first batters, not the first, but one of the first to bring that into the game. Um, do you think that's how high do you how highly do you regard that as an important uh, weapon in your armory as a batter? Oh, it was huge for me. That was my main go-to shot. Um, I could sweep from a very young age. Maybe I didn't have any sort of real coaching. You just learn how to do it. You get, you, you get it wrong some days and it hits you on the foot or it hits you on the pad. And so you do it differently the next days. But I did, once I got playing professional, work on it very, very you know, intensely to know that I could then sweep any ball from any bowler almost. Even sort of seamers at bowling sort of 75, 80 miles an hour, I felt I could sweep anything. Um, I would go into nets um, in my prep and my practice uh, and literally sweep every ball that was bowled from, from spinners. And they used to get so annoyed. So they'd run up and then try and bowl as fast as possible and hit you on the foot. Or they'd run up and bowl a bumper uh, and then you just duck out of the way. But 
Um, I got so confident with it that, you know, I felt like any ball I could, they bowled, I could sweep it and get it into position. Must be a nice feeling that, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that with us. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, mirroring the fast bowlers question, really, um, I'm, I'm guessing you might have already mentioned one, but which of the spinners do you find toughest to play? Um, and was there any times you felt you had to change that technique during your career, maybe? Mm. Very much so. This is an interesting one because this, this probably kept evolving more than anything else. So, as I said, I could always tweak the ball. Um, and then before DRS, you could always get in a way, you could get away with just thrusting your pad at the ball with your bat somewhere close to it so that you LBW wasn't in the game. Well, that's totally different nowadays. So your defensive technique has to be absolutely spot on. You have to, in my opinion, I think you need to have your bat out in front of your pad. Um, so your bat is your only line of defence. And if you miss it, hopefully it misses everything. Um, the best bowlers I faced, there was obviously two around that time. Shane Warne, I regard as the best spinner. Um, bowling leg spin, um, just absolutely brilliant. Could change a plan could uh, change the field and then sort of execute what he was trying to do while at the same time he's just always chirping in your ear, um, chirping to the umpire, just sort of trying to distract you and do certain things, but a brilliant bowler. And then Muralitharan, um, you know, again, he was very, very fine bowler. Uh, at the start of my sort of time playing for England, uh, I, I had good success against Muralitharan. I got 100 in Sri Lanka in my first uh, game out there. Um, then I got another hundred against him in another place. But then, so you only have a, to start with, he had the off spinner and then the, what was called the, the top spinner. But then he invented the Dusra, which went the other way. And I couldn't pick that at all. And I used, towards the end of my career, sort of 04, 05, around that sort of time, uh, he used to get in the LBW quite a bit. And I used to just get the pad in the wrong place. Um, and I had to change my technique and it took a bit of time to get that right. Um, around 05 I was actually changing my style of technique because I had to I kept again I kept getting out to warm caught that pad at the silly point um, even right to the end you know my style against spinners was ever evolving because of DRS and the way that spinners bowled almost then the off spinners um, and left arm spinners have come become more valuable in, the, in, a, in a team uh, and off spin in particular so the ball spinning away from me um, I, I sort of lost confidence with it completely. Um, Jeetan Patel was giving me a lot of, getting me out a lot uh, in county cricket and I couldn't work out a method. I kept trying to sweep and missing it or I would try and play a certain shot and get out to it. So then one winter, a couple of years ago, I spent all winter working out and changing my style and my method um, to offspin and I had to reinvent my style. And I think this was the year before I retired. Um, so I then went into the following season with a different plan and approach about what I was going to do. And I limited myself to playing three shots. One was like a push through extra cover uh, to get off strike. One was like a back cut. Um, anyway, I could lay cut quite well. Um, my hands worked quite nicely. So I had a push through offside, a back cut and a little paddle sweep. Uh, and that was the only shots that I played to an off spin after that. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Marcus. Um, again. Brilliant. Again, brilliant sharing of that, you know, for the youngsters that have joined us today and just the simplicity of, of the plan, which I guess leads us nicely into, into the next part, really. Um, apologies for the two sweep shots again. Marcus does have other shots, guys, that he did play. Um, so I do apologise about that. But Marcus, your sort of mental approach to batting, um, 
And again, these are questions that we've got three or four of these come in, so I thought it'd be, it'd be nice to share them with you. Uh, were there any specific processes you used as a player to deal with pressure um, when you mm. played at the top? Anything well, I, this is the, the biggest untapped area of, of the game. Um, and it's obviously harder for youngsters to understand how it goes, but the older you get, the more you realise this is the difference in the game because you have your technique and your style of play, but um, it's what's going on in your head really makes a difference. Um, can you be uh, robotic like in your approach and your thinking to help you then produce and score runs out in the game? And, um, you know, so I, we had a psych, sports psychologist who was very good working with England at the time called Steve Bull, um, who really helped me sort of produce and change my style of thinking and, and help me with concentration in different ways. Um, one of the great things that sort of came to me was I needed to try and distract myself when I was more under pressure. Um, and I found quite often that either I was under pressure with the situation or I would be un under pressure because my thinking wasn't quite right in how I was moving. Um, quite often as a batsman, you might go out there and go, oh, move your feet or you know, get your foot into line. You know, this is totally the wrong things that you need to be thinking at that moment at time. You need to be focusing at the other end, watching the ball come out of the bowler's hand um, and facing the ball. I then started around that sort of time of, um, of singing to myself when I was batting. Um, various different songs, quite often songs that were quite relevant in the charts at the time or, you know, that was well known. Um, and all I was doing was distracting my brain to allow the natural side of the game to take over because then it could happen on instinct. Um, and then, it, then everything happened to seem to sort of fall into place. Um, you know, it, it, it then changed and, and you went through different phases and I, I got better at concentrating and understanding what concentration was like. I could get to the point where I'd be going, right, just watch the ball, watch the ball, watch the ball, um, and being at your best in that way. Um, so it's ever evolving and ever changing, but you've just got to try and find out simple methods that will really help you and uh, techniques uh, and people out there who are specialists in this sort of thing um, can really make a difference. Great that you sort of highlight the need to practice the mental approach there as mm. well as, you know, you've, you've, you've alluded to repetition and 10,000 reps for the, for the yeah. side, but I think it's great for the guys on here to hear um, that the mental approach doesn't just happen. And, you know, we, people can read up on it and talk about it, but, hearing from yourself that it, it takes practice and that you've spent a lot of time practicing I think is really important for, there was, for there's, one, there's one point to that almost is that there was a period of time it was about 2001 2002 where I was getting a lot of scores of sort of like 85 to 90 and really starting to lose focus getting close to the, to the 100 and the nervous 90s if you like and I had to I spent a lot of time with Steve then at that time just thinking about how I'm going to overcome this um, and I, the only way I sort of worked out how to do it was to get to a point from about 85 and then switch into this mode of what I practice in the nets. So I would then go from 85 to 100 in singles was what I was trying to do. Um, and the only way I could get this right was practice it into the net. So I'd go into every net session and go, right, I'm 85. What are you going to do? And trying to, so you're trying to replicate yourself back into that brain um, where you're thinking about it while practicing a mental skill. And the technical side would look after it because you, you're distracting yourself and you're practicing something and you're getting used to it. And over the period of a few months of doing that regularly in every net session that I did, it, it sort of helped overcome those sort of feelings because when I got to that point again in a test match or a first-class match, I could then switch into the, the brain of where I was going to 
and have a method about what I was trying to achieve, which really, really helped me. Yeah, thanks, Marcus. Just linking back to what we spoke about earlier, someone like Warren, then, for example, who, was, who you know, notorious was to the onlookers of sharing, but obviously you've just confirmed that, really. Mm. What, what's your approach with someone like him, then? Because obviously, with him trying to, to get you out of that, you're trying to get into that zone, aren't you, of, of yeah. um, focus? He's trying to get you out of it. What was your approach with him? Um, I'd be aggressive. Be aggressive in how we were playing, how we were batting. Try and kind of keep scoring. Um, kind of not let him get you under pressure because if he did, um, he he would he'd have you, and that'd be it. You know, you had to keep putting him under pressure. Was the best way that we worked out. Um, and in the 05 series was was really the key bit. He, he still got 40 odd wickets, 43 wickets, I think he got in the series. Um, but he got them at a, such a different strike rate, which put the other bowlers under the pressure because normally. He was um, he was going at two and over, where this time he's going at four and over. Perfect, that's great. I have um, a question, please, Tom. Sorry, of course. Yes, please. Good to hear. Hello, Marcus. Marcus, you Hello. talk about um, what you're doing. You know, time to when the ball's spinning or coming faster. You've time to look at it where it's coming from. What you're going to do with it? This ball is taking half a second to leave the bowler and get to you. Maybe a yep. minute, a second if it's a if it's a spin ball. What does that do to your brain? What's your brain like to be able to deal with that sort of speed of reaction, the speed of thinking? Do you really have time to say, I know where this ball is coming. I know what to do with it. Wow, I'm going to do it. Because you obviously do. Because <laughs> yeah, maybe it, we it, could it, give a few other people around here running the coronavirus campaign or something, the same sort of decision-making capability. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, an interesting insight into. I'll, I'll stick to the cricket. I know yeah, that, let's but, stay um, from politics. Perfect. Yeah. What was it? <laughs> I, I think um, you know you you practice and you train at that high level. Um, but when you're facing someone bowling fast, you have that. It happens all on instinct. So you know I, I'm not making that that decision um, as he's letting go and say, "Oh, there's that ball. That's what's coming down." It's too late. It's it's all happened. You know, you predicted it already. I know, I can see where it's going to be and I can predict where it's going to be all without you, ha without you thinking about it so that you, it just happens. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to explain because I'm not, I'm not a scientist enough to really understand it, but you, know, you train just, it. Just, just a fluke, is it, Marcus? Yeah, just no, a fluke. It's training <laughs> at the highest intensity, isn't it? You know, you, you've got to be able to put yourself in that situation. I don't know. Is there, an, you know, going back to Jonesy's question, oh, is it? Is there an, an element of natural talent? I don't know. I don't know. But um, you know, we practice for so long and put yourself in that situation. Is it? You just get used to it. That's um, amazing. Just amazing. How it happens, I don't know. Yeah. Honestly, honestly, I think a lot of people could learn from that. That sort of decision making, use of brain, sort of capability. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. No, that's great. Marcus, that sort of leads us in really um, to the final couple of questions here. Um, obviously, many many will say that batting provides probably one of the biggest challenges in sport, probably because of the ruthless sport in cricket, because of the ruthless nature of, of batting as such. Um, were there times where, well, would you agree with that statement? I guess is 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 the question. I think. I think it's relative. The pressures are all relative to your own sport, I think. Um, yeah, there's many a time I've sat down after nicking one for naught and gone, 
why is this so hard work? You know, why, why is this so tough? But I can't see it being any different to any other sport. You know, the only difference is the, the length of time that you need to do it to succeed. Um, you know, the only thing that would be, I don't know, comparable with maybe golf, you know, they have that similar sort of four or five hour time scale where they've got to be concentrating the whole time. Yes, they can recover from a bad shot and, and make it okay. Where if we have a bad shot and it's not our day, you're sitting down dwelling on it thinking, what have I done? You know, what have I done? But um, it, it's tough. It is tough. You have to deal with the mental side of failing um, and, and make peace with it almost because um, it's going to be there. It's inevitable. In, in any sport that you do, you've got to be prepared to uh, accept that it's uh, going to go wrong. Thanks for that. Um, Finally, do <clears throat> you think it's important for coaches' parents to allow failure with younger cricketers? I think slightly lower down the, the sort of pathway here, but without without going without us going too far into you know this this you could write thirty thousand words on this question. I think it's a great. <laughs> it's a really interesting question to come in, but because um, there are parents on here listening, there are coaches listening, there are players. Um, whose parents are involved in the cricket, some more heavily than others. Um, what's, your, what's your view on that? that... Yeah, I, I think it's important at some point that they, they need to experience the, the failure or the, the disappointing side of the game or in, in any game, any sport that they, they play in. Um, because you have to prepare for that because it's inevitable that it will happen. You know, that, that no one goes through their whole sporting career succeeding every time. It's just not possible. Um, so you, you know, to be able to cope with that, if you, the better you can cope with the failure, the more you'll have success at the top end because you'll become um, understanding. Like I said before, you make peace with it um, to know that if I keep doing the right things, I will succeed soon, um, and and you will get better. But you know, you've got to be as level as you can. So you you, you can't you can't not go through a period of time and not experience failure because once it happens you'll drop down so far that uh you know it's really hard to recover from and, and sort of bounce back so i think the earlier you can experience the better because then you can understand it you can start training for it and start practicing with failure um which makes you better in the long run um studies show that you know the you know if, if young kids who have had great success also have a tough failure at some point um will be more experienced and better prepared for it when it happens again at a later stage. So there's mm. got to be an element of being exposed to it. But on the back of that, how um, coaches, parents, uh, parents, coaches slash parents react to failure because um, as a coach and, and yourself, uh, as a coach, you see many varieties of reaction from parents. And I don't know if you have a viewpoint as to, certain yeah. approaches are more helpful than others when it comes to, to helping youngsters through their difficulties. What do you think on that? Yeah, that, um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. Um, the more supportive we can be through failure, I guess, the help it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring someone through better. Um, being realistic, you've got to be honest, but you've got to be supportive at the same time. Um, I, try, I think once with the sort of coaching I do, especially with the younger levels at school, I try and get them to understand why it happens. You know, what was that famous quote from Michael Jordan about how many times he's missed and he's lost, um, but that's why he succeeds because he, he appreciates it even more once he, he gets to that point. But um, 
as much as possible, I think, when you're in team sports in junior cricket or junior sports, you know, let, let the coaches do their work. I, I watch my girls. I've got two girls, 12 and, and 15. And when I watch them play sport, I don't get involved in any way. I, I try and stay um, non-committed to what's going on. Inside, I can feel that I want them to win and I really hope that they do. And if they fail, they, you know, you, you take on a bit of that responsibility. But I allow the coach just to do what they want to do. Um, and it's tough. It's tough as a parent to, you know, to not be involved in it and get stuck in and come on, you know, do the right thing. But, um, you know, I want uh, the coach to, that's their job. That's what they've got to do. Um, I don't like to butt in and, and help out, but it's tricky. It is tricky because no one wants their, their child to, to be failing. Um, but, you know, there's, there's an element that they need to learn from um, to make them better. There we go. Parents are watching, leave the coaches to do that. I think that's great advice. And I think that, I mean, that can be supported, can't it, with, with effective dialogue and communication between coach and parent, which doesn't always happen. Um, it's so hard, though, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, yeah it's not easy. It, it's it's not. really hard. <laughs> you know, I, I've seen my, my wife does it and I shout her every time, but uh, I also get punched <laughs> afterwards. But, you know, it, it's so tricky because you, you're so invested in what your child's doing. Um, but if you can to sort of distract, like to sort of take a step back and let it happen, it, it it's definitely helps. Brilliant, thanks for that. Um, moving on, becoming a world class slip fielder. Um, <laughs> quite an amusing image there, and we thought we'd get a close up of it as well because I know that um, Marcus, you're the reason that loads of our of our youngsters in the last two two or three years want to lie down during slip catching practice. And we say to them, well, what are you doing? Well, Marcus Descothic does it. So how can we respond to that? So I guess my question really here is, is that, you know, you, you took 560 first-class catches. Were you a specialist slip better always? Um, what skills are required? And what was that? So the bottom right, the bottom right picture, where you can see me sort of grab that there. Yeah. That, that was the moment that changed the game, right? So that... Um, that was, we changed the principle about what we were trying to do. So it all came around is that we were, we played on quite a number of pitches that spin at Taunton, as most people will know. Um, <laughs> we found on, on days one and two, the ball would spin and bounce. But then on days sort of three and four, if it ever got to that far, um, the ball would spin, but it would keep a lot lower. It didn't bounce as much. So if they nicked it, it, it quite often wouldn't carry um, to the slip fielders, especially the guy at gully, you know, we used to find that it would go, it would bounce in front of you. So in the, in the practice, myself and uh, Lewis Gregory, he was quite often at first slip at that time. And Lewis, it was Lewis that came up with the idea. He said, well, why don't you go on your knees and see what happens? And I was like, no, stupid. I'm just getting on my knees at, at gully. Um, and then we practiced it and it was like, wow, you know, we're taking so many more catches here. You know, because, because there's no movement of your feet or trying to bend down, I'm catching the ball a centimetre off the ground, anywhere around me, plus you can dive forward and scoop the other one up. So then we, we invested a bit of time in practising and doing it and, and trying to do it. And then we tried it in a game down at Hampshire. Lewis did it for the first time. Um, nothing happened. Um, and that, that picture at the, uh, on the bottom right corner was the first catch that we, that we ever had. And, and it was the, the point that we realised we've got something, you know, we've actually invented something that's actually going to make a massive difference. Um, hence then we took quite a number of catches that, uh, that, that, 
you know, in that sort of position, which you, which you don't normally get, but um, it was a great moment. Uh, anyway, on to a few of those questions there. Uh, was I a specialist fielder, a slip fielder? Um, I was always a slip fielder. Um, whether I was a good slip fielder or not, I don't really know. I got myself into a good slip fielder because I practiced hard and worked out of it, how to do it. No one really ever taught me how to be a slip fielder until I played with England. Um, and then Duncan Fletcher sort of taught me a, a technique about what you were trying to do. And I didn't think there would ever be a technique to catching or fielding and things, these sort of things. Um, so you just sort of stood there. But he wanted you to be as relaxed as possible. Uh, so when the ball took the edge, you could then react um, and catch the ball. Very much like you are with batting. So get a very comfortable, balanced position. I always found my hands on my knees um, the most comfortable position because I could stay there all day just watching the ball go and you'd stand there and watch the ball go to the keeper and be very relaxed. Um, but he also wanted us to practice trying to catch the ball. Imagine being in my slip position, catching the ball out in front of you, um, diving forward to catch like two foot in front of you would be the position you wanted to do. So you're, you're always thinking about leaning forward because um, the, mi the minute you would go like that and react to the ball being nicked off the bat was the danger position because then you couldn't get back down into it. So being very relaxed and practicing in a good way um, was a massive difference to me. And, and I, I regarded my slip fielding to become one of the best when I was playing with England. And I, I, I took a lot of pride in what I was trying to do by not, by not dropping any. Um, and I was operating at sort of 90% of catches taken, um, which I was really happy. But I wanted to get to 100%. I, you know, every time you drop a catch, it's a horrible feeling. But, um, you know, you, I don't know if there's any skills involved necessarily. I think it's a practice thing. Um, you get in there and you, you work out a way of um, watching the ball. Um, the concentration is important. I think you've got to have a certain element where you can be able to focus on and off all, all day. You know, you, a ball's bold and right, it goes through to the keeper. I remember there was one game um, playing for Somerset against Hampshire down at the Rose Bowl back in the time. Uh, and I stood there for 103.9 overs, point, point 0.5 overs. And I got a nick the last ball of the day. Thanks very much. Off you go. So, you know, having that concentration, um, being able to focus and just think about it um, was really, really helpful. Um, and the, well, the theory, yeah, I've gone through the theory of stat, being down on your knees. You know, it's really important that we were trying to catch balls that were really low down. Um, and it definitely made a difference. We've got everybody fooled because you see it around the world. You see international cricketers doing it now. Um, and you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, what, how, what have we done? Um, I, I don't think it or the law will change. I don't think there's any law against um, being on your knees, um, but there is method in the madness. Apart from in your coaching sessions, I'd imagine. Well, you, you've got to be prepared. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you, you need to have a certain amount of kit on because <laughs> towards the end of it, I actually was trying to get in the way. I, they would go like, you'd be pressing forward so you could be leaning forward. The minute they'd go back and cut, I'd be like this, trying to get as big as I could so that the ball could hit me because obviously you've got a helmet on you could then be caught off the helmet. So I'd get as big as I could to try and let the ball rebound. And you'd either have someone at silly point or you'd have the wicket keeper just over here. Um, we never got one, but I got hit a few times, but um, we didn't get any catches, unfortunately. Perfect. Um, Mark, that's great. Obviously, this is <clears throat> uh, probably something you spoke about more than anything, I'd imagine, since the um, series that was, well, regarding, it's probably one of the greatest series of all time. Um, certainly of, of, of our generation but there's a few questions that have come in 
um, here they are. And really, what from your from your side, what was the difference that series? Um, and you know, what gave gave the England boys the edge over the Aussies that series? Yeah, I think um, for the first time I played in sort of three Ashes series, and for the first time. Um, we were in a completely different state of mind about what we were going to try and do. Um, over the 18 months before this sort of Ashes took place, we built up this team um, that we won from a lot of difficult positions. Uh, we were going to be a lot more aggressive in how we batted and bowled. Um, we also had a bowling attack that could you know, challenge anybody in the world um, and, and make it very tricky. So come to that, the start of that Ashes, that uh, we were just in a, you know, a lot more aggressive place. We were a lot more confident. We would stand up to them and not be bullied by what they normally do when they give you all the verbals and get in your face. It wasn't the case of that because we were being dominant um, and it almost didn't allow for them to be, to try and bully you. Um, it was only really Shane Warne who succeeded throughout the series. A couple of their batsmen did okay, but uh, you know, the bowlers really struggled by the game at, uh, at Lords, which obviously comes on to the second question. Yeah. The, feel, the feeling after Lords. Um, was pretty dejected, um, not because we'd lost necessarily. It was the fact that we'd, we'd gone into the series with great hope um, and we'd not played in the fashion that we'd done before. You know, that relates back to the first question. The style of play that we'd sort of given ourselves and the method that we were going to do it, we stood off. We, we sat back uh, and we weren't aggressive enough in, in what we were trying to do. Um, and that gave the Australians the upper hand and, and they dominated us in that first test. We were really lucky, actually, that after that game, we had a week off in between that and the second test match. So you could get away um, and, you know, put the kit away and not think about it too much um, and then come back and prepare. And, you know, that was the, the key bit to it. Then the preparation time in that week off was absolutely pivotal to refocusing the mind and getting us back in into where we needed to do. It then helps Glenn McGrath standing on the ball was a massive help. Um, things then sort of fell into place. You know, everything sort of was going our way after that. Um, and you were rolling with um, the successes that we were having and we were putting them under pressure and getting on top of every game that we played. Mm. I think the, 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 the tone that was set on that day at Edgbaston, would you argue it's, it's, it redefined Test cricket? Uh, no, I'm not sure redefine because I think Australia had been doing it for a good period of time before. You know, they had such a, a fantastic team. Yeah. Um, and what we did on that day, they'd been doing to numerous teams around the world for a long period of time because they had um, a fantastic top six, top seven um, with a brilliant bowling attack. So they were always ahead of a game, um, which is exactly what we did. Suddenly they took the best bowler in the world out of the game in Glen McGrath and it was a different, different game altogether. You only had then Shane Warne to really contend with. Um, and we were just very confident and aggressive about what we were trying to do. And um, in, everything that happened really set the positivity in that. You know, so there was a lot more things that went into it to make sure that we could play and be aggressive in that fashion. But if we'd have come out and been a little bit tentative in that Ashes or in that edge busting game, um, you know, it, it could have been a lot different. If they'd have scored three more runs or two more runs in that last innings, it would have been a lot different. But they didn't. They gladly. Rest is history, as they say. Best series ever? Um, Yeah, I think there's not been many test series that we've seen since, is there, that's really sort of stood up to it. Um, I think we've had some good occasions and some good times. Uh, I thought the last series was pretty good. You had some great moments, obviously, throughout last summer with the the World Cup and obviously with Ben Stokes at at Headingley. 
Um, but as a five test series goes, it's uh, amazing, you know, because it ebbed and flowed all the whole time. There was great days. There was great bowling spells, great catches, great runs. Um, it had everything that you wanted to watch. Perfect. Marcus, I've got a couple more questions, if that's okay, before I open it to the guys if they want to ask any of their own. But one of them is on a, on a coaching front, um, and that's what coaching, what coaching style worked for you as a player so what um what was the best the best coach you coaches you worked with their approach with you what was that and how did it you know why was it the best approach with you yeah i think i worked best with obviously two coaches that was uh, duncan fletcher and dermot reeve when he when he sort of coached somerset um duncan fletcher it just seemed to when he used to talk about batting uh, and the methods that he was trying to us get us to undertake, it seemed so simple. Um, it felt so logical about, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That, why wouldn't it work in that way? Um, I had a great deal of trust in him, and I think he had a, a lot of belief in myself also. But So we had a great partnership where we could talk and work out and I could go to him to, to understand things. But he made it just incredibly simple about what I was trying to learn and get better. Um, it also helps that when he mentioned things and I tried to get them right, they, they did have an impact on the game and they, they brought success um, when it changed it. Uh, Derma Reeve was a little bit different because he got me to think a bit more outside the box. Um, quite young in the time when I was playing with Somerset then um, and not as experienced or uh, well-known in what I was trying to do. Um, he would challenge your thinking and get you to think differently about how to play the game, talking about sweeping spinners, um, other aspects when you're fielding, about bouncing the ball in, Every, you know, just different approach to what it had been. You'd face norm, you'd had normal cricket coaches before, but then this guy had come in, which got all these different ideas um, and just made you open your eyes to, you know, to, to work in that way. Um, I, I guess I, I needed to build a relationship with somebody to, to really get the best out of it. Um, I've had a few coaches that just didn't really, we just didn't click. Um, or you know, didn't like the style of way that they would try and coach me. It was quite aggressive potentially, um, and a bit not not di dictatorship, but um, you, you've got to do it this way. This is this is how you have to do it. Um, there's a big difference between that um, and somebody trying to get you to learn something. You know, Duncan had that method of getting you. He wanted you to do something, but in your way, um, mm. and that made a big difference for me. Brilliant. And just a few sort of quick fire. Questions. Uh, two most promising cricketers on the county circuit at the moment, youngsters, who would you say? Cool. Well, I suppose, would Tom Banton still be one of those, I suppose? You don't um, have to wear the Somerset hat here. Yeah, I think he's probably the most exciting batsman in the country, yeah. um, not playing sort of test cricket at the moment. Ollie Pope would be another one. I think he's He's an outstanding young player um, and he's going, to be, he's going to have a fantastic test career. And I think eventually when Joe Root sort of moves away from one-day cricket, he will step into Joe Root's sort of position there at sort of four um, and be the glue to the team. Um, I'm trying to think of a bowler to look after the bowlers. Um, uh, Saqib Mahmood, probably, the, the, one at, uh, the lad at uh, Lancashire. I think he, he's got some raw talent and he's, uh, he's pretty exciting about what he, what he does as a bowler. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Not as easy with the bowling, I don't think. No, that's great. Um, 
just summarise your thoughts on the. Um, I'm trying to get keep this as concise as possible because I can see where it can go. What are your thoughts on the hundred for next season? If you were just to summarise that briefly, I, I think it'd be an interesting concept. I think it's going to be um, exciting when it happens. Um, such a shame, obviously, we're in the situation we are at the moment. We're not going to get to see it, but um, it's just a new style of, um, of of the game, which is going to be different. It's going to uh, provoke um, conversations around the country. Uh, you're going to see things from players, which will be very exciting when it finally happens. Um, you know, it'll just it's just different, isn't it? When you've got a bowler who can bowl uh, three of the last four overs, you know, how's the game going to evolve? Can he change games by being one bowler? You'll see a lot more. Um, one-man games coming through, I think. Um, but you'll see some exciting cricket, there's no doubt about it. Great stuff. County Championship cricket, there's quite a few County Championship followers that have joined us today. Um, a couple of things that you think would, would increase attendance is at Championship games. Can you think of anything? If you were if you were on the ECB board and you were trying to in, in, increase the attendances, what, anything you'd do? Uh, from a batting point of view, I'd get rid of the seam on the ball for a start. I think that'd be... That'd be much better for the batsman, um, but I think um, in general, um, it would have been great this year off if we had played because the weather's been superb for for county cricket. I think the pitches would have been um, a, a lot better than what they have done. Um, but it's it's a tough game. County cricket is a tough game. You you know you're rolling from one week to the next. Um, you got to just uh, keep trying to improve. If we can get uh, the time of year, would be better. If we get more games in the middle of the summer, which would really help the batsmen, um, I'm sure many many of the quick bowlers will be very happy to, to keep them around uh, early April and late September. Um, but any cricket right now would be great, wouldn't it? So uh, it's just a, an interesting place where we are. Perfect. Um, Marcus, that's been really useful. I mean, fantastic. And thanks so much for being so honest and open in your answers there. I'm sure that all the guys who have joined in appreciate that. Um, just going to give a chance for just just a few, if that's okay with you. I'm aware we're just over the the, the hour we've allotted for it, but if you're happy, um, yep. just to do a few few open questions. So, uh, my right hand man Ben has got um, a list of guys who would uh, who we've sort of selected out to read a few questions. So, Ben, could you um, invite the next person or the first person to um, ask their question, please? Yeah, of course, mate. So the first one on our list is um, Henry Thomas. Is Henry still there? Henry. Um, yep, I'm here. Very okay. good. Henry, do you want to go go ahead with your question, mate? Okay. What was your What was your most favourite test in the 2005 Ashes series? My favourite test. Um, Probably, uh, it's a tricky one. I would probably say edge batting because obviously I got some runs in that in the first um, in the first innings. I got 90 in the first innings, which um, hopefully got us on a good start to, to winning the game. Um, but they were also nerve-wracking because everyone was quite close. You know, there was something happening always at the time. Um, it was really uh, exciting and uh, nervy cricket for, for a good sort of five, six weeks. Um, but great fun. What's your favourite? Um, hmm. The Lord's Test? The Lord's Test? We lost the Lord's Test. Wait, no. I forgot. Ah! 
What would you, uh, what am I saying? Yeah. <laughs> oh, bless. Was it the Oval? The Oval was the last one where we won. That was a good yeah. one. Well, we, yeah, we drew the test match, but we won the series. Yeah. I liked it. Good, good, good. Did you watch Kevin Peterson's 158? 157 did he get? 158? Yeah, I think it was 157. Good, good. Okay, Henry, thanks for that. Brilliant, mate. So you just put your microphone back on mute, H, that'd be great. Good lad. Ben, do you want to crack up with the next Yeah, I can do. Thanks, thanks, Henry. Great, great question, mate. Um, and on the note of Kevin Peterson, then, we've got a question from Will Erland. Okay. Uh, Will, are you there? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Um, do you think he's a hero, a villain, or do you think <laughs> This is, well, this has changed since the original question. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'd make the wording a bit more concise. Okay. I'm going to be like a politician now. I'm not in, <laughs> I derange the question. But That's why I gave the complicated option. <laughs> yeah, as a batsman, um, he's a genius. Um, I think you see the odd player now and again. You've got, you got the likes of someone like a Shane Warne would be a genius in my eyes. Um, Brian Lara would be a genius. Kevin Peterson. You know, I just watched it today, just watching back some of the shots he played, which was just incredible, you know, how good a player he was. I watched another game the other day against South Africa when he got a massive 100. Um, and it's just like, wow, you know, not many England players have ever played in that sort of fashion. Um, he's off the field. I don't read too much into it. Um, if you ever get a chance to have a glass of wine with him, he's a great man and, and great conversations about stuff. You just got to put up all the razzmatazz and, and rubbish that goes with it, really. But um, he's a good man. He's a good man and uh, a fantastic player. Thanks, Will, for that. Yes. Um, no, no worries. Thanks, Will. Ben, have we got time for a couple more, mate? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, next one I've got on my list. Um, I've got a few more, if that's all right. Uh, not too many. Uh, I've got Johnny Gale from the um, England Learning Disability Cricket Team. Oh, Johnny's joined us. Hey. Thank you, Ben. Hi, Flowers. Good to see you. Uh, Marcus, thank you for the webinar. I was really interested in hearing all of what you've said so far. I've got a couple of questions regarding um, your mental approach with your batting. Um, in this case, um, what were your methods you tried to use when you were trying to make sure you kept your shape early in your innings? Um, I think this probably goes back to, you know, to my, my style of leaving the ball. I, I wanted to... Um, <clears throat> As much as you can do, you want to be aggressive, of course, when you, when you open the batting, if the pitch is conducive to that and the ball's not swinging too much. But I go back to the simple start of what it was. If I was hitting the ball late, um, right as close to me as possible, then you could do you know, most things at uh, that stage. Um, it, it, the problem was is if I got a bit too expansive and started playing the ball a bit too early um, and not getting my body into the ball, then that's when I was really in trouble. So. Watch it, watch it early and you know, play it late was obviously really important for me. And how did you, in addition to that question, um, keeping that mentality side of things aside, um, how did you try and maintain the positive mindset if you found yourself in a situation where you were playing everything too early or even if you were going quite well and then you had that sticky patch of play? How did you go about those kind of situations? So a sort of drill that I would always do, if I was, if I was hitting the ball not like I wanted to and, and more often than not that was always too early, um, I would have practice beforehand knowing that that was happening um, where I would have every ball thrown at me and I would try and smash it into the floor as quick as possible to almost make it sort of bang. So if I was going to drive, I, I'd hit it and it would 
you know, and ricochet into the floor as quick as possible. That was really uh, important. You could also then recall that, obviously, sometimes when you're out in the middle and starting to get ahead of yourself and hitting it too early, um, you get back to that point of trying to hit it into the deck as quick as possible. Really, really uh, made a massive difference. Yeah, I think naturally you, you go through um, phases when you're batting and, and, and different points of concentration because I don't think you can concentrate the whole time. It's more of an, uh, an you've got to know how to uh, a, accept it when you, when you may lose that little bit of concentration. Um, and what are you going to do about it? Um, because, you know, more often than not, you start worrying about, oh, no, I'm losing concentration here. I'm not as focused. Well, you've just got to get it back to it. Take a few deep breaths, take a bit of time, maybe call for a drink um, and just get time to be able to refocus and get back to the simple things that you're doing. That's awesome. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, great. Um, I was just aware of the time here. If we got, um, would anyone else like to unmute themselves and ask a question before we wrap things up, please? Is anyone? Uh, go, go, go. Say me, please. Me, please. Perfect. Fire away. What was your favourite ground to play at and why? Oh, good question. Uh, my favourite ground, I think, is Lords. Um, is a wonderful ground because of the history and the the ground itself but if I wanted to bat anywhere in the world um, where I would back myself to get runs I'd go and play at the Oval. Um, the pitch was always really good um, and the viewing the background always felt like it was very very good you could very white and you could see everything. I always felt like the Oval was a was a pitch that you were batting on where they were bowling from like 25 yards rather than 22. It always felt like the ball was a bit slower at the Oval where you play other grounds where you don't get runs and it feels like they're bowling from 17 yards. Um, so the difference is, is, is a huge difference, but you know, it's a brilliant place to bat the over. Brilliant. Great question. Thanks for that. That's brilliant. Guys, any more? Have we got one, one more? Thank you. One or two more. Anyone like to ask their question? I think we've got one from Ali Wall, haven't we, Tom? Is Ali still here? I've got another one if I've got time, time uh, Tom. And, yeah. Yeah, that's fine, Peter. Far away. Marcus, you were a left-handed batsman. Yeah. A lot of people are born left-handed who've seen it as a disadvantage. Were you a natural left-handed or did you nurture it? And was it an advantage? Um, I, I've always batted left-handed. Um, just from an early age, picked the bat up and stood that way, I'm told by mum and dad. Um, I'm right-hand dominant, so my right hand, my right arm really? is strongest. Um, if I play any, any, if I play any two-handed sport, so cricket, golf, baseball, I do it left-handed. But anything one-handed, like tennis, bowling, throwing, is all right-handed because I'm right-hand dominant. Wow! And if you're playing football, what what foot would you kick with normally? What would be the dominant oh, foot? Both, obviously, but I'm uh, right foot dominant. <laughs> Thank wow, you. Wow, that's really interesting. Oh, there's another C. Brilliant talent. Your brain is working both sides of your, your head as well. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. Just that's how, how I grew up. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Quick, quick, quick question, if I can. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm Marcus Scott from CL Sports. Um, really appreciated watching you uh, playing for England. I think you were the first uh, big hits and left-hander, really. I can remember playing for England and uh, inspired me as a player. I always found when I played club cricket that I played better with a good relationship with my teammates. Was there anyone special that you felt you always performed really well when you played with them? 
Um, I think as an opening batter, you always got to build that good relationship with um, your opening partner. Um, I, don't get me wrong, I've always found it quite easy getting on with people. Um, we had a great relationship with Andrew Strauss, a good relationship with um, Michael Vaughan um, and other players that, that you get used to. But you do build that bond together, don't you, and build a, a good opening partnership because you have to walk out to bat together. But I think that comes in teams rather than sort of one or two people because... You know, there's gonna you're gonna have to bat if you play well and you get double hundreds. You're gonna bat with probably seven or eight different people. So you've got to build that relationship with most people and understand what goes on when you're batting with that type of person. Um, but stats would show. I think there's you know people do have relationships and score better with certain people. That's for sure. Um, you know, it just it just naturally unfolds. You during my time with Somerset, the amount of times me and James Hill just would have batted together. Um, and had success would have been a lot because we we worked really well together when we when we batted. So um, everyone has their own unique way, almost. Appreciate that. Thank you for your time. Scott, no thanks for that, Marcus. Thanks for answering that, guys. I'm just aware of the time, and um, Marcus obviously um, got his evening and, and, his, and his children to get to, and etc. So um, look, I just wanted to say um, from my side a huge thank you to Marcus for. Hey, uh, and also thanks to you guys for your input and making it an interactive session. Um, Marcus, fantastic. Thank you so much for, for, for giving it your time for today to speak to our um, cricket family that we have. Um, guys, thanks for all your input. Hopefully you found it useful. Hopefully it was great to get insight into a, um, a legend of the game. And that word shouldn't be used lightly, but he is a pure legend of the game. Um, stay safe, everybody. Remember, next week we have got uh, Harry Gurney, who global T20 franchise cricketer at the same time. That proved to be an interesting, well, that should prove to be an interesting discussion. I know he has some very uh, different but insightful views on, on cricket, and that would be worth listening to. So if you can make it, again, that's 4.30. And tomorrow morning we're doing our weekly cricket and coffee webinar at 10 o'clock. You can catch up on that on Facebook Live if you wish. Um, Marcus, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to leave us a review and follow us so you never miss an episode.